0: I have um, something of a confession to make before we begin. Ever since I took my first lungful of air in that dry New Mexico high desert in Albuquerque, New Mexico, ever since that very first day of my life, over 49 years ago, I've had this struggle. I've had this challenge. It's a struggle that I've worked with and against for my whole life. It's a struggle I've noticed as recently as this morning, and I'm even aware of it right now. My challenge? I think a lot about myself. I think too much about myself. I'm always checking in with myself, asking, self, how you doing? It's just natural. I can tell you right now, if I'm hungry or if I'm tired, I can tell you right now, If I'm in pain and where, I can tell you whether I'm discouraged or depressed or happy or overwhelmed or unmotivated or downcast or excited or expectant or sorrowful or disappointed. I can tell you these things because I'm always checking in. Just very naturally. Just happens. Take a step, my, my knee goes boom, and I think, oh, I don't like that. I can tell you these things because I think about myself too much. And I want to live, part of me wants to live a me-centered existence. I want to be the hero of my own story. And I think, maybe, possibly, I might not be the only one in this room with that struggle. Now, admittedly, it's not all bad because we all have legitimate basic needs and we should think about ourselves from time to time. But... I think all of us would grant that the challenge we continually face as Christians is we can take a me-centered approach to our existence and relationship with Jesus. It's very easy to do. And what do I mean? Well, it's good, it's right, it's correct that we each think and sing about what Jesus has done for us personally. We should be grateful for our new life as Christians, our constant forgiveness, our future in heaven. Yet, if we only stop there and only think about what he has done for us, we don't go far enough. If, we only think, if I only think about what Jesus has done for me, what he's doing for me, and what he will do for me, I don't go far enough. If you only think about what Jesus has done for you, what he's doing for you, and what he will do for you, you don't go far enough. It's insufficient. Why? Because Jesus is preeminent over all things. He's preeminent not just over me and you, or our church, or the East Valley, or Arizona, or the United States, or the world, but the entire universe. He's not just preeminent over today, this moment, five minutes from now, yesterday, tomorrow, next week, Next year, this century, this millennium, but all time, this Jesus we serve is preeminent. So in the, time we're going to, in the time leading up to Easter, we're going to explore the preeminence of Christ over all things. We're going to attempt, as hard as this is, to remove ourselves from the center of our story and look first to Jesus. This doesn't mean we won't apply these things to ourselves, but what we must do is be a people who start not with ourselves, but start instead with Jesus. That, that, that's the whole idea. That, that's the idea. Jesus is preeminent over all things. Robert Murray McShane says this, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Now, I do the opposite. Doggone it. Doggone it, I do that. And and again, I may not be the only one. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love, and repose or rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with the heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. So in this time today and in this series, we're going to look often at Christ we're going to consciously look away from ourselves and we're going to take our starting point away from what I what I think what you think what we all think what we feel what we all you know all, all the different ways we focus on life and look first to Jesus and see him as preeminent this morning we're gonna ask the question we're gonna examine his advent the, His coming he came Once at Bethlehem, he's coming again at the end of time. So we're going to think about the first advent and ask the question, Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus who came to this earth? Who is this Jesus who came to this earth? And We're going to find that he is the beloved son of the Father. He is the beloved son of the Father. And we're going to find out why that matters. As we walk through our passage He is the beloved son of the father I'm going to read beginning in Galatians chapter 4 Remember this is going to be a different kind of sermon We usually go verse by verse Here we're taking a topic and we're asking what the whole Bible has to say about it In 30 minutes that's why we need prayer But I'm going to read Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 If you follow along with me I'm reading from the English Standard Version Here is God's word But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We might receive adoption as sons and daughters, I would add to that. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help me, Lord, even as I preach, to take myself out of the center of my mind. I pray that you would give me the gift of self-forgetfulness, Lord. I pray that you would help us to see you as high and lifted up like you are. You are preeminent over all things, and it is to my shame that I consider myself most important in my life. You are, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us through this series and in this message to grasp hold of the reality that you are preeminent over not just over us, not just over our church, but over all things. I pray you would help us, Lord, to see why that matters, Lord. I pray that you would give us the mo- this moment during these, these moments in this sermon, Lord, to just sit on the sidelines and watch and see what you have already done before we ask, what does this mean to us? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would just help us to see you high and lifted up and preeminent over everything. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So who is this Jesus who came to this earth? Who is this Jesus who came to this earth? I'm going to highlight two different things. He's many things, but I'm going to highlight two different things. He's Son of God. He's also God the Son. He's the Son of God, and He's also God the Son. First, the Son of God. Galatians 4 says, God sent forth His Son. And he did this at the fullness of time or at just the right time. It's important to see that Jesus' arrival on earth did not make him a son of God. He was already the son of God. Jesus is and has always been God's son. Now, we know from the Bible, if you are a Christian and you've been around church, you know that there is only one God, and that God is triune. This means that God is one And together, completely unified, He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ has always been God's Son. And this is one of the reasons that Jesus called God His Father. Recall in the Lord's, in the Sermon on the Mount, when His disciples asked Him how to pray, He said, Our Father. Now that was the first time anyone had referred to God as Our Father. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, The unique son of God who was uncreated, who was not made, who was was always with God. This son of God invited us to call his father, our father. One theologian says the name father is not merely a simile as if God were simply like a father or a metaphor an unusual use of language drawing attention to God's nature in surprising and odd terms. But Father is a definite personal name. It's a description. Who is God? Father. Who is the Son? Who is Jesus? The Son. This means many things, but one such thing is that our fathers and those of us who are fathers are to be measured by our Father in heaven and not vice versa. But that's another conversation Similarly, Jesus, being described as the Son, is not merely what He's like. It is who He is and who He has always been. Now, why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is the Son of God? It matters because when we see that Jesus is the Son of God, we recognize that there is love between the Father and the Son. Any of you here who have family, I have three sons and one daughter, and I love all four of them immensely. We know that familiar relationships together are meant to be marked by love. And we know yet in this fallen world, they aren't always what they should be. But we know the pattern, the goal, is to express love and to show love one to another for all the days of our life. Similarly, what we see with God the Father and the Son of God is a relationship of love son, what does a godly son do? He submits, he obeys, and he serves the father. You're not going to understand who Jesus is and why he's preeminent if you don't first understand that he is, G- he is God's very son. Now, why does this matter? It's common and has been common even in Christian circles to imagine that God is an angry, vengeful, unreasonable flying-off-the-handle kind of ogre, and that Jesus hatches a plot on his own to go and rehabilitate mankind so that God might not be angry at them. That is not what happened, and that is not the case. The Father and the Son are always on the same page. Always. They're always together. You see, the Father sent the Son and the Father sent the Son so that we might be able to see and understand here is God's beloved Son. At His baptism, we hear the heavens, sh- heavens proclaim, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He wasn't well pleased because he got baptized. He was already well pleased with Him. Gerald Bray says this, The glory of God the Father's loving initiative is the greatest theme in the New Testament. The supreme manifestation of that love is the giving, sending, and sacrificing of his Son. But it depends for all its force on the special relationship between Christ and the Father. Now, how special is that relationship? We're going to just maybe take a step back. Gerald Bray, he's a great theologian, but sometimes really good theologians can say things that you have to sort of unpack to understand what they're trying to communicate. Now, (laughs) would we be able to count on the deep and abiding love of God, the Father, if God didn't really know Jesus that well? He just sent him because Jesus was willing to go. Would it be meaningful if Michael the archangel came to God in his weekly staff meetings and brought a photo, brought a photo along with him? Because here's the problem. The Lord says to Michael, listen, we've got a world that's out of control. People are a mess there's wars, there's rumors of wars, there's earthquakes, there's all kinds of horrible things going on down there. We need someone to send. We need someone to send to be, you know, to to do something for these people because they're not going to be able to rescue themselves. We need someone who can rescue them. So who are our candidates? And Michael comes in and goes, well, I've got this picture of all the inhabitants of heaven. And God's like, okay, I'll pick one. And so he looks and he goes, who's this guy fourth from the left in the 12th row? Who's that? oh, he's Jesus. You think he'll go? Michael goes, yeah, I think so. I mean, he said he would. And so God goes, what's his name again? Jesus. Okay, I'm going to introduce you to him. You try to remember his name. Do word association so you can remember his name is Jesus. So he comes into the office. The Lord rises. Of course, all this is heresy, by the way. The Lord rises. The Lord rises, shakes his hand, and says, so, Jesus, are you sure you want to go down and save that rabble. Now, how meaningful would that kind of relationship be? Like, if that's the way it went down in heaven, do you think we would say, behold the love of God? No, we would say, behold the administration of Michael and the Lord. Would we be able to write songs or poetry about God's love for his people if he just sent some guy who was willing No, right? No, of course not. Jesus is far, far removed from the fourth guy in, twelfth row up. He's the son of God. Before the stars were in space, God the Father and God the Son shared love together. Before the solar system spun on its axis, The Father and Son were in communion together. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, before the formation of all things, before anything else, before the Father had or created anything else, the Father had the Son and the Son had the Father. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all together in perfect harmony. So, who is our Jesus? Who is this Jesus who came? a beloved son of the father understanding the preeminence of Christ starts with understanding that he was first a son that he was beloved he was beloved of God his father there is nothing greater than the fa- to the father than the son and yet what does our passage say Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. God sent his beloved Son so that you and me might be adopted as sons and daughters, The Father gave the Son to bring many sons and daughters to glory. God loved no one like He loved the Son. And yet, the Father gave up the Son. The Father loves the Son with an unbreakable, eternal sort of love. And yet, the Father still sent the Son. The Father sent the Son. And the Son told us, and we read it in John chapter 17, the Son came to share the love that He has with the Father that they share mutually. He wants us as individuals to experience that love. Now, if the Father just sent somebody who was willing, what's the measure of that love? Not very deep. But what we have is a relationship between the Father and the Son that goes back before time began. The love that they share is not new. It's not even ancient. You can't put a time stamp on it. Their love, their mutual love together, has always been before there was matter and before we were even before, we were, we, before the earth sprung forth into existence. The Father gave His beloved Son so that Christ the Preeminent might bring many sons and daughters to glory. Now do you see? Do you see if the starting point is God, how much God loves His Son? And we can see that love entirely outside of us. It doesn't fall upon us to try to earn that sort of love. What we do is we say, whoa, look at the love the Father has for the Son. I want in on that. That's how we start. That's how Christ becomes preeminent. Recognizing that He is the Son of God. But also recognizing, point two, that He is God the Son. The Son of God is also God the Son. This means he is equal with God in every respect. Every single respect. We can see this clearly throughout the whole Bible, but maybe most clearly in John chapter 1, where we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word there is Jesus. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John's telling us that the Father and the Son are equal, and in fact, the Father created all things through the Son. Then almost mysteriously, he says something in John chapter 1, verse 18, that bears a little bit of, an, of examination. He says, no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side. He, being Jesus, has made him known. Now, is it true that no one has ever seen God? Let's think about that. Well, here's what Michael Reeves says. It's worth quoting at length to help us understand. Had he left it there, he's speaking of John. Had he left it there, meaning saying that no one had ever seen God, his gospel or his account, the book of John, would have been laughed out of every synagogue. For you don't have to read the Old Testament very carefully to see that thousands did see God. Jacob, after wrestling with him, exclaimed, I saw God face to face. We read that the Lord would regularly speak with Moses, quote, face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And at Sinai, with his brother Aaron, his nephews, and the 70 elders of Israel, he saw the God of Israel. Samson's parents cried, We have seen God, as did Isaiah, who wailed, Woe to me! My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Sometimes the sight was described as seeing the glory of the Lord, as when Ezekiel got up, went out to the plain, And the glory of the Lord was standing there. And this sight of the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people of Israel in the Exodus, a people who numbered many hundreds of thousands. Now, why is this important? Here's what Michael Reeves says, and I agree. It it was important then that John went on to say, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Who had they been seeing all along? Not God the Father, but God the One and Only. Who is that? The Word, the Son, in the glory of God. In other words, when you read the Old Testament and see that, who, that see, see Jacob, Moses, Aaron, the elders, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Shadrach and the boys seeing God, who are they seeing? God the Father? No. Another figure, the Son, the one we call Jesus. See, the ministry of God the Son did not begin at Bethlehem. (laughs) It wasn't like, okay, you know, Jesus, you've been on the bench long enough. Go get him. No, he's been working. He's been working. He's preeminent over all things. He's preeminent over all history. He has been the one who has been working for to protect his people, to rescue his people, to deliver his people. He dwelt among his people. He forgave his people. He had been doing that through all of history. The Son was the one who rescued the people from slavery in Egypt. He's the one who guided them in the wilderness. He's the one who provided manna for them to eat, eat each dawn. He protected the people against the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. That's the Son. That's what he was doing. This is always, this, he's God the Son, always working on behalf of his people. Because remember, Jesus, what does Jesus do? He reveals who God is. And so it's amazing that God the Son would become so very small. By becoming a baby. He entered into the womb of the woman, of a woman he created. Now, think about that. It's a different kind of coming. In coming in the fullness of time, Jesus did what he always did. He revealed the Father to the people of God. Now, instead of doing that, in a cloud, or in fire. Instead of doing that in a burning bush, instead of doing that in an earthquake, instead of doing that with lightning and thunder and and trumpet sounds, instead of revealing God that way, he revealed God by becoming, what? A man. Only lately has God the Son put on flesh. But his ministry has always been the same. Jesus was the divine son before he became the incarnate son. In other words, the son did not become divine. He was always divine. So when we say that he's God the son and the son of God, we're not saying in any ways, in any way or by any means that he's created. He's not. He is the mean. He is the one who created all things. And here's why this matters. If Jesus were created by God, as the ancient Arians or modern Mormons assert, the Father, the love between the Father and the Son wouldn't be that great. It wouldn't be eternal for one thing. So if Jesus is created, God can't say, I have loved you forever. No, there was a time you did not love this Son because he wasn't, right? I can't say of my kids, I love all of my children. One, I love them and I remember each time I held them in my, ha- my arms and I remember that explosion of love that just came up inside my heart that I can't even put into words. I knew it was real, this love, this bond between a father and his son. I have three sons and one daughter. But I can't say that that love, as real as it is, was forever. Because there was a time they did not exist. If that's the kind of love that God has for the Son, it's not enough. It's not enough. We could say there was a time that the Father did not love the Son because the Son did not exist. And that's not good. That undercuts all of Christianity. And we could say that Jesus earned love from the Father because of what he did. And that, friends, destroys Christianity. Destroys what we believe and undercuts the whole Bible. We instead must push deeper. No, the Father has always loved the Son. And the Son was never created. He was forever at the Father's side. Jesus is no hireling. He's no hired hand. He's not somebody who is just a mercenary got to do a job. He is Christ preeminent. And so the kind of love that Jesus wants to share with us as God the Son and the Son of God is an eternal kind of love that never had a beginning. See, what He wants to share with us is not the kind of love we have, even at the deepest human level for our children or for our spouses, but a different kind of love, an eternal kind of love, the kind of love that doesn't have a start date and does not have an expiration. See, the love that we have, that we can share in our Savior, because He is the Son of God and God the Son, does not have a timestamp. stamp. It always is. It always is. So when we look to Christ preeminent and think about the, the love that He wants to share with us, we can thank God that the kind of love that they share is eternal. So the kind of love we have in Christ is also, guess what? Eternal. And this matters more than I can express. T.F. Torrance said it this way, there is in fact no God behind the back of Jesus, no act of God other than the act of Jesus, no God but the God we see and meet in Him. Jesus is the open heart of God, the very love and life God poured out to redeem humankind, The mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. All things are in God's hands, but the hands of God and the hands of Jesus in life and in death are the same. See, this is why when we say we're fixed on Jesus, we're not ignoring God the Father. Neither are we ignoring God the Son. Actually, we know who God the Father is by God the Son. And we want to know who the Son is by the work of the Spirit. We will talk more about the work of the Spirit as we go through this series. But the Son of God shows us the love of God most clearly. And this helps us in a hundred different ways, but I'll just mention one. When we hear in John chapter 17 that God in His wisdom, sent His Son. And the Son prays so that, He prays that we might experience the love they had for all eternity. He wants to give us that kind of love. That changes everything. You know why? Because He's not giving us the kind of love that is here today and gone tomorrow. He's giving us the kind of love that He and His Son share. So we think about Christ preeminent, there is no one the Father loves like the Son. And in His heart of generosity and love, He wants us to share in that love. If Christ is not preeminent, if Christ is not the preeminent object of the love of God and His love, of the Father and His love, then the love we would have from Him would be a sham. It would be paltry. It would be thin. It would be of no help. But because Christ is preeminent, because the Father sent the Son to receive and to grab and to get sons and daughters to be adopted into His family, because this is the mission of Christ on earth, We can know for sure and for certain His love will never run out for us. How do we know that? Because His love has not run out for the Son. See, we stepped into this familial relationship as Christians. The love the Father has for the Son, the love the Son has for the Father is now ours. Do we deserve it? No. Is it because of anything we've done? No. Is it because we're wise? No. See, this is why we must be a people who first think about Jesus and who he is and what he has before we ask, what does it mean for me? See, here, Jesus, we see God the Son and the Son of God is the beloved treasure of the Father. And He is the preeminent treasure of the Father. He's also, for us, the preeminent expression of God's love for us. If you ever wonder if God loves you, don't look at what you've done or who you are or where you're from or how many times you've asked forgiveness or how hard you're trying. Look away from yourself and look instead to Jesus. Jesus. He is preeminent. And you and I and all of us can share this love as adopted sons and daughters of the Lord Most High, our Father. Why? Because Christ is preeminent. Christ, preeminent. Christ is our hope. Upon him rests our hope, our help, our life, our everything. Christ, preeminent. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that in your coming we can see your preeminence. We're grateful that as we ask the question, who is this Jesus who came to this earth? God the Son and the Son of God. And Lord, we're grateful that that love that we are invited into is a love that existed before us. It didn't birth in the heart of God or in your heart when you saw us. It's always been there because you always exist. And so, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen those in this room who are followers of you who don't feel your love. I pray you would help them to recognize that your love is not a feeling. Your love is not based on, your, on our obedience Your love is based on the work of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we would all make you, Jesus, preeminent in our lives and in our hearts. I pray that we would be a people who take ten looks at you for every one that we look at ourselves. I pray that we would be a people who consider you as you are. You are preeminent, although many times in our own minds, we think we are. We want to be our own heroes. We want to be the center of our own stories. But, Lord, that's not who we are. You, Jesus, are preeminent. You and you alone are preeminent. And so, Lord, as we walk through this series, Jesus, I pray you would give us eyes eyes to see you more than and dwell on you more than ourselves, Lord. In your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.